Okay, I guess we can get started. Uh, welcome to Cato. I'm Jim Dorn, uh, Vice President for Monetary Studies and uh, Senior Fellow at Cato. Uh, we're pleased to have uh, Timothy Beardson and uh, Philip Swagel here today to discuss uh, Tim's new book, uh, Stumbling Giant, The Threats to China's Future. So there's copies outside. I think you signed some, pre-signed some, so I don't know how many uh, have a premium on those, but... Uh, <laughs> In this book, In Stumbling Giant, The Threats to China's Future, uh, Timothy Beardson discusses the forces that threaten China's future's rise and the reforms needed to ensure peaceful development. Uh, there's much talk about China's dream um, and fear that China will overtake the United States economically and is a threat to the U.S. Uh, superpower status. Uh, however, two points need to be made. First, trade liberalization and prosperity have refocused the Chinese Communist Party's attention away from ideological struggle, which was the case during the Mao regime, uh, and toward what they call peaceful development. Uh, and of course, the U.S. and the world uh, is better off with a prosperous and peaceful China uh, as opposed to an authoritarian uh, and isolated China. Uh, second, as Chinese liberal Leo Juning wrote in a book that Ted Carpenter and I edited uh, several years ago called China's Future, Constructive Partner or Emerging Threat. Uh, Leo said the following, quote, whether China will be a constructive partner or an emerging threat will depend to a very great extent on the fate of liberalism in China. A liberal China will be a constructive partner, a nationalistic and authoritarian China will be an emerging threat. I think that's, that's correct. Uh, and that's why free trade and open markets are so important uh, in this respect. Uh, Beardson rightly notes that China faces serious threats from within. Uh, he points to a number of them that uh, I'm sure he will discuss and Phil will discuss. Uh, I'll just give you a quick laundry list. Uh, demographic problems, social instability, especially land rights issues, the hook. The HUCO system, which is the registration system uh, for migrants. It uh, discriminates against migrants. Uh, various legal disputes, the lack of an independent judiciary, corruption and the suppression of civil society, uh, environmental degradation, financial repression, politicized education, uh, and lack of indigenous innovation, as well as uh, several other uh, serious problems. He discusses a broad range of issues, not just domestic economic issues, but uh, foreign policy issues. Uh, most books just focus on one or the other. He focuses on both of them uh, and gives a, a, a very in-depth uh, explanation of what's going on. Uh, in the end, he calls for substantial reform, especially uh, a genuine rule of law to limit government power and safeguard property rights and personal freedoms. And one thing I like that he does is he said, democracy may not fit China, as we know it in the West, what's more important is to limit the power of government. Talk about limited government and the rule of law. Uh, and I think that's a very important point, a point that Peter Bauer used to make. Uh, with respect to economic liberties, he observes, quote, becoming a financial center requires more than ambition. It requires the rule of law. And I, I would cer certainly agree with that. And I would add, it also requires a free flow of information. Or, or what Ronald Coase uh, has called a free market in ideas. Uh, Timothy Beardson uh, 
is, has been in Asia for over 35 years, very successful uh, entrepreneur and uh, a businessman. Uh, he founded a majority, uh, he founded and majority owned and ran Crosby, which became the largest independent investment bank in the Far East. Uh, it was the first international investment bank, in fact, to open in China. Uh, and it was the only foreign bank invited to help uh, set up the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Uh, he is the chairman of the China Oxford Scholarship Fund, which provides financial support to highly talented Chinese graduates from disadvantaged families to pursue postgraduate work at his own alma mater, Oxford University. Uh, currently, he is engaged in developing uh, an internet site called China Outlook, and it's an internet-based newsletter specializing in high-quality writing on China's future. His book, uh, Stumbling Giant, The Threats to China's Future, was nominated for the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction. Uh, Mr. Beardson was an open scholar and took an MA in modern history at uh, Christ Church, Oxford. Uh, please help me welcome Timothy Beardson. Well, Jim, thank you very much indeed for that very kind introduction. Um, maybe before I start, I ought to make some general remarks. Um, I wrote this book for a number of reasons, but one is that the rise of China is the most read subject in the print media and in the internet over the last 15 years. And yet there's been a surprisingly small literature on where China's going to go in the long term. And of that literature, about 90% of the books take the view that inevitably China will replace the United States as the world's future superpower. In the book, I felt quite strongly, as Jim mentioned, that this isn't an economic story. It's something that requires an integrated look at all the drivers that determine the future of a country. I've looked at education, technology, culture. I've looked at the future of the Chinese language. I've looked at the psychology of the country, the history of the country. Um, so it's probably an unusual book in taking a very diverse set of windows onto the determination of China's future. A few general points. One is that, of course, there's a problem of scale whenever we talk about China, because there's a lot of everything, whether it's good things or bad things. So it's not particularly surprising to say, well, China's got a lot of this. The population's four and a half times that of the United States, unless they have more than four and a half times as many problems or as many good things. It's not really worthy of comment. So to contextualize is really quite important, and it's very rarely done. The second point is that the data in China is very frail if you just take GDP numbers. 
we simply don't know what China's GDP is. We don't know what it's grown by year by year. And the government doesn't know either. The sources of information that are available to the Chinese government are weak and limited. So when traders on Wall Street are excited that China's growth is 7.4 this quarter, it's comic. Not only do we not know the point four, we're not sure about the seven. <laughs> Thirdly, sometimes people say, Beardson's lived in Asia for 35 years. This, is, this book is the result of what he's thought over that time. And that's simply not true. I, I started work on this book three years ago having lived there for over 30 years. And quite quickly, in the course of researching for the book, I decided that quite a lot of my views were wrong. It's quite easy, living somewhere, to fall into the conventionally accepted points of view about subjects that you're not particularly engaged with. Um, and when one actually has to research into it, it's quite salutary but quite often one decides that those views are wrong. Um, but the fourth thing I'll say is that um, it's very conventional to talk about the re-emergence of China. Um, Condoleezza Rice used the expression. Hillary Clinton's used it. Um, Henry Kissinger wrote a book a year or two ago about the re-emergence of China at the center of world affairs. But China has never been at the center of world affairs. And the only justification for this sort of theme is that um, there was one economist in the 20th century who specialized in writing long-term economic uh, analysis. What was the world's GDP in the year zero? What was it in 1600? And China had one of the biggest economies at those two points in time. But it was never more than a very, very important Asian economy. China had no cultural or economic impact on South America or on Europe or on Australia. It might have had some voyages in the 14th century to East Africa, but it's left virtually no trace whatever. I mean, China's global cultural legacy is less than that of Denmark. So what we're seeing is the emergence of China in world affairs. And that's a very important story. What I've done in this book is to write about the challenges that I see coming in future, which will affect China's ability to continue to grow rapidly, and that will affect its opportunity to become a superpower. So I'm dealing really with negative issues. I'm trying to assess how serious they are and what are the policy options to, to confront those challenges. <coughs> As Jim mentioned, I, I write about domestic challenges and also challenges overseas. I talk about cyber hostility. I talk about um, regional issues in East Asia 
Um, I talk about how China behaves in the world as a rising power. Um, but what I'd like to do in my remarks is just talk about domestic issues because I'm hoping in the Q&A we can talk about anything that people would like to talk about. Um, but the principal challenges to China are within China. And for me, the largest challenge and the one which has little opportunity for policy alleviation is that of demography. The demographic challenges for China are fourfold. The first one is that the workforce in China is now starting to decline in size. If you look at the annual rate of births in 1970, they have fallen so far by 40%. And of course, that's coming through to the entrance to the workforce now. And the simple effect of that is that wages are rising at double digits, have been for some years, will continue to do. And this is forcing China to move from a low-cost manufacturing economic model to finding an alternative model. And the most likely one would be a move to innovation. The problem is that China has had very little success at all in generating indigenous innovation. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the aging of Chinese society. In 2010, there were 110 million Chinese over the age of 65. By 2030, there'll be over 300 million. So in a relatively static population, we'll see a tripling of the over 65s. It's happening at a time when the structure of a Chinese family is changing. Very few people have siblings today. And so a young couple with the effects of modern medicine are finding increasingly that they have four parents alive and possibly even eight grandparents alive. The ratio of dependence to people actively working is changing very fast in China. And the traditional cultural norm of looking after the old people in your neighborhood, maybe even in your house, is becoming very difficult. At the moment, scarcely over 1% of the elderly in China are in any kind of institutional care. This is going to have to change radically. I would suggest by 2030, it could even be 50% which means, in numbers, going from care homes for a million people to maybe 150 million people. This is in a society which has severe budgetary constraints. We all hear about China being the second biggest economy in the world, but until recently, its budget was smaller than that of France. If you look at government tax revenue as a percentage of GDP, 
In America, it's over 30%. In Western Europe, it's between 40 and 50%. In China, it's scarcely over 20%. There are lots of reasons for that. But um, if we're going to put 150 million people into care homes over the next few years, it may mean it'll come at the cost of five aircraft carriers. There are tough budgetary decisions for China to make. And the fourth challenge, the biggest challenge for China in the long term, is that the population is still slowly, slowly growing at, at ever-decreasing rates. And every demographic forecast would have that peaking out by around about 2030. In fact, in the 2020s, India will overtake China to become the largest country in the world. That has an effect on foreign capital flows. Um, but after China's population peaks, there are a number of different forecasts as to what happens. But every forecast there is has China's population falling distinctly. The most mild projection is that it will fall by one-third by the end of this century. That's the United Nations, which tends to follow the guidance of its member countries. But if you look at the academic forecasts, they're for anything up to falls of two-thirds in the population of China, <coughs> bringing it down at the most severe end, bringing it down to a population of scarcely above 500 million. And that means that at the end of this century, depending upon the immigration policy of the United States, the two countries could have roughly the same population. That has a strategic implication. But I think the biggest impact of this is that I can't think of any society in history which has had sustained steep falls in its overall population and at the same time has been able to engender long-term high economic growth rates. So I think by the 2040s, we'll be saying, hasn't China had a good year this year? It's grown at 2%. Because it's quite possible that if the overall population shrinks, as every forecast has it, that the overall output of goods and services is going to become smaller not bigger. Of course, innovation can help if they can finally crack innovation. That can compensate, but it probably can't completely outweigh the impact of such a steep fall in its population. So what I suggest in the book is that China has a limited window of time in which to engage in serious reforms that will affect its ability to show long-term growth. And if it doesn't tackle those reforms while there's funding available, while the growth rates are high, it'll find it much more difficult to engage in those necessary reforms in 20 years' time. So 
that's, for me, the largest issue. Um, I talk about innovation quite a lot because it's obviously important. Um, there was a survey a few years ago by the Chinese that 83% of the high-tech exports from China were made by foreign companies operating in China. I mean, there are patches of excellence in China, 3D printing, high-speed computers, some of the space research, genome work. But a lot of this is big project, government-style research. What we're not seeing is very effective commercial research that's affecting China's ability to compete in the world's export markets with innovative products. So there are issues. There are issues about the culture of science in China, the importance of seniority. The most senior scientist, the oldest guy, is the one who's right. The young guy in the corner has to be wrong. Uh, there's an inert culture of deference. You could take it back to the education system of China. Um, if you look at the university entrance examination system in China, the Gaokao, very much focuses on learning data to answer questions. It's not looking for critical thinking. It's looking for memorization of data. And that affects the sort of students who are at the universities. China has gone from the late 1990s, when it had about 700,000 people going to university, to now 7 million. It's built a new university every three days for the last eight years. It's a problem we have everywhere in the world of too many young being sent to universities and the economy not really wanting the products of those universities. The official data on graduate unemployment is not very helpful, but the unofficial estimates are between 40 and 45 percent, which is more than Portugal. It's probably the highest graduate unemployment in the world. People get very excited about how many graduates are produced in China, but the quality is not very good. McKinsey did a study a few years ago and asked multinational companies, what do you think about Chinese graduates? And they said that 86% of them were not suitable to work in any international context. So we've got the wrong education system, the wrong scientific culture to encourage innovation, and that really needs to be dealt with. It needs drastic reform. The financial system, I, I describe as being dysfunctional. And I'll give three examples of why. Um, over the last 30 years, China's reported economic growth has been in the region of 10% a year. And it hasn't been 10, it might have been 8, we don't really know. Um, but it's been very, very good anyway, we all know that. Um, but in 1980, the private sector was 3% of the Chinese economy. It's now about 65%. So if the economy had grown at 10% a year, the private sector has grown at over 20% a year in real terms. But 
less than 12% of all bank loans are made to private companies. So access to commercial credit has been a severe constraint on the growth of the Chinese private sector. The Chinese stock market this week was at just over 2,000. 13 years ago, in 2001, it was at 2,100. Foreign investors are quite surprised that when they decide they want to invest in a country growing at 10% a year, the stock market somehow doesn't reflect that. But of course, the stock market isn't a reflector of the economy because government controls access to flotations and it gives priority to state companies. So something like 85% of the value of the Chinese stock market is state companies. So you wouldn't expect it to perform in line with overall economic growth. But of course, if your most vibrant and fastest growing companies don't have access to capital, you're holding back your economic growth potential. Foreign exchange reserves are something that attract quite a lot of attention. They're now up to $3.8 trillion, and a lot of that is here in America. And people say, well, whatever the problems are in China, if you've got $3.8 trillion of foreign exchange reserves, you can get yourself out of a lot of those problems. I think what people tend not to do is to focus on how China has accumulated those reserves. I mean, on the surface, it's fairly obvious. China intervenes in foreign exchange markets generally to stabilize its currency, or as is sometimes said in Washington, to manipulate its currency. Um, and what that means is that it's selling Chinese currency and buying foreign currency. Similarly, Chinese companies have been quite successful at exporting. They accumulate foreign exchange. And under Chinese regulations, they have to sell that foreign exchange to the central bank in return for domestic currency. So at the end of the year, it's not surprising that the government has more and more and more foreign exchange. But of course, in both those examples, it has to spend domestic currency to accumulate that foreign exchange. Well, a few years ago, China didn't have $3.8 trillion of its own currency. Now, where's it come from? It's arisen through two different methods. One is that China has created a bond market, now the fourth biggest in the world. It issues bonds domestically. The other is that it requires all the banks that operate in China to place a percentage of their balance sheet with the central bank as reserves. And it pays interest on that. So China has $3.8 trillion of foreign exchange reserves, but quite possibly $3 trillion of domestic currency liabilities. As an aside, of course, the interest rate it's getting on US treasuries or other equivalent instruments around the world is rather less 
than it's paying to domestic savers for its bonds or to banks in China for those reserves. So the loss is estimated at something like 60 billion US dollars a year. And of course, the situation is very exposed to the continuing rise of the Chinese currency. Since 2005, it's up 35%. This is, you could argue, the most highly leveraged, undiversified currency hedge fund in the world. I wouldn't argue that this is a position of great strength. I would suggest it's a position of great vulnerability. It's something that needs to be unwound early. So there are many points of weakness. How are we doing for time, Jim? Another five. We could talk about the domestic environment, which is the worst of any major country in the world. Um, there are an increasing number of riots in China. The last figure we have is 180,000 large-scale violent riots in one year, which was 2010. But it's been steadily going up. The extraordinary thing about riots in China is that they're not really political. They're not really aimed at the government. They're normally aimed at local government for things that local officials have done. And the national leadership has actually been quite effective at deflecting any suggestion that they're somehow responsible for what goes on at the local level. Um, it's usually officials taking farmers' land, selling it to real estate developers, taking a huge amount of money, because local government in China is perennially short of revenue and it has most of the spending responsibility in the country. The biggest item in the national budget is transfers to local government, something like three quarters of the budget. They're always short of money. Um, and taking land from farmers is the best way of getting income, they believe. But it causes a lot of unhappiness. And also pollution, pollution of rivers, water, soil. Uh, they tend to cause a lot of anxiety. Um, in, um, in Shaanxi province, which is the famous coal mining province of China, 18% of children are born with birth defects because of the air pollution. And in Yunnan province, down in the southwest, 30% of all children have traces of lead poisoning. Um, this sort of thing occasionally causes an eruption of anger in a village or a town where school children get ill, something goes wrong. Um, so, Keeping the whole show on the road is, is quite a big exercise for the Chinese government. But I, I think if the Communist Party is able to address the majority of the challenges that are in front of it, it's quite possible that they could stay in power for quite a long time to come because there's no great call in China for political change, change of the institutions, but there's quite a call for better governance, better performance by government. And the party's adapted itself incredibly successfully over 30 years, from the Maoist times to now. It's really quite a professional organization in many respects. Um, but they really have to 
get a greater sense of urgency about the problems that are coming down the road and tackle reforms more quickly. The problem that they have is that they were the fastest reforming country in the world through the 80s and the 90s. And the reforms just stopped about 2000. And one of the main reasons was that the further reforms that would logically come next came with more and more of a political price to pay and therefore were harder to envisage because somebody gets hurt. Somebody in the elite is going to suffer by some of the reforms that are needed. On the other hand, we've gone from leaders like Mao and Deng Xiaoping, who had some authority, some charisma, some credentials, to leaders like Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, who didn't have the same authority. They'd just come up through a political system. They hadn't won a war. They hadn't got a mystique. And so you had weaker leaders and tougher reforms that were needed. And so reforms just stopped. And now the debate is, is China going to unleash reforms or not? Xi Jinping has talked about a series of uh, reform areas last November. But he said um, that uh, we'd really like to have results by 2020. Um, you know, it's not encouraging. There isn't yet a great sense of urgency. I mean, a lot of the reforms that he mentions are areas that need to be tackled. Um, but there are so many people who stand to lose in the leadership structure that it's, it's difficult to see how some of these reforms will actually get prosecuted. Thank you. That's pretty good without a watch. Uh, so thanks very much. Uh, we'll get to more topics during the Q&A. But uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Philip uh, Swagel, an old friend. Um, he's professor of international economics at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he was assistant secretary for economic policy at the Treasury Department from 2006 to 2009 where he was responsible for analysis on a wide range of economic issues, including policies related to financial crises and the troubled uh, asset relief program. Uh, he also served as chief of staff and senior economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors as an and as an economist at the Federal Reserve Board and the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Phil has previously taught at Northwestern University, University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, and. Georgetown University. Uh, at AEI, he works uh, primarily on, uh, well, on both domestic and international issues, and his research topics include financial markets reform, international trade policy, and the role of China in the global economy. Uh, Phil has published numerous articles in the scholarly journals. He's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Uh, you'll find his columns very uh, interesting and very informed. Uh, Phil earned a bachelor's degree in, uh, in economics from Princeton University and a PhD in economics from Harvard. Uh, please help me welcome Philip Schwegel. Uh, thank, thanks very much. Thanks for the kind introduction. and Thanks, everyone, for, for coming. And, and thanks, first of all, for the, the excellent book. Um, so the norm 
in a book discussion like this is for me to criticize, right? And that's, that's actually the norm for economics, right? If you've ever been to an economics seminar in academia, the audience is there to try to get the speaker to cry. I mean, that's sort of the, the norm, and especially if you've done one of these at Chicago. Um, that's, uh, that's sort of the norm. Um, and so this is the opposite. I, I think it's a great book. It's really a, a super book. Um, so I, I'm going to um, praise it. Uh, and, and talk more about uh, what, what, what's in there. Um, I have a question or two at the end that, uh, that maybe I'll, I'll be the first question uh, for, for Timothy to be uh, you know, Q&A, but, um, but I, I think it's really a great book. Um, and I actually, I, I like the title, and it's a metaphor that I've used uh, in the past, uh, obviously separately, which is um, in the sense of my metaphor for China is a country that's running full speed headlong. And of course, when you run full speed headlong and you're looking straight ahead, well, you miss the, the obstacles in your path. And so of course, you stumble. So the stum stumbling giant, I think it's uh, exactly right on. Um, uh, as Timothy said, the book prevents, uh, presents China through a diverse set of windows. And I, I think that's one of the, the strongest parts of the book compared to other uh, uh, books on the subject. It's just incredibly comprehensive. It's, it's virtuoso. I mean, you saw the discussion he just gave. Um, and that, that is, uh, is way more in the book. And so it's, it has both the 30,000-foot perspective and then drills down um, to, uh, to, the, to the details. It covers both internal and external challenges, especially internal, but, but also the external with a series of chapters on China's relations with its uh, with neighbors. Um, uh, it, it covers economic policy and social policy and explains the, the tight connections between the two, uh, domestic policy and foreign policy. And so it's, um, yeah, it's just, uh, like I said, comprehensive and, and virtuoso. Um, the, the other way in which it's wide ranging is that the book goes back and looks at the influence of the thousands of years of Chinese culture on present day policies, and then says, well, look, here's what happened in 1949. Here's the legacy of the revolution, and here's what that matters for today. And actually, I, I was thinking of 1949, but of course, then it, it talks about er the earlier revolutions, right? 1911, 1912, um, uh, and before that. So it's, um, uh, and, and how these events and, and the people um, influence the decisions taken today by the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Um, so it's really, uh, I, I, I don't want don't, don't want to go too far in praising here, but it's uh, it's really uh, deep deep knowledge in an accessible way. So there, I've gone too far. Um, okay. So uh, so one other thing I like, which uh, is nice, is that it's not it sort of breaks free of the usual, you know, either you're a panda hugger or you're a alarmist uh, view of China, which is was pre prevalent in the U.S. And uh, as Jim said, uh, I, I have a book put out uh, by AI Press is joint with Daniel Blumenthal, who's a colleague at AI, um, on China. And the approach we've taken is economic versus security and the two different views of, uh, of the world. And it's as this book integrates that. It integrates both the economic uh, and the, um, uh, the security. Okay, so there's a very heavy focus in the book in, in terms of looking at the challenges for China as the challenges for the Chinese Communist Party. And I think it's appropriate given their system. And the book explains why that's appropriate and, and the connections, of course, the tight connections between the, the party and the state um, and, and society. And, and one thing that I took away is that it's striking um, the difference in accountability at different aspects of society. So the sense in which there's accountability for the party at a macro level. Right? And the party is responsible for ensuring rising prosperity. 
right? And they've done that, and, and what, what he just said, and, I, and I'll describe that a little bit more, but the micro accountability, the kind of individual or especially local decisions, there's some, and there's beginning to be more on the rise of social media especially, um, but it's not yet the kind of accountability that, that we have here in the United States. And so think of, uh, say, the, you know, the rollout of the Affordable Care Act or the different uh, state-level exchanges. Um, I mean, it's almost ironic that there, there isn't the sort of macro accountability yet. I suspect there will be in, in the fall elections. But the, the micro accountability, there, there sure has been, right? I mean, I, I live in Maryland, so think of um, you know, the accountability with the Maryland um, uh, the, the, the problems with the Maryland exchange, there's been very, I, I suspect, very heavy accountability, right? It's, a, it's affecting the governor's race. There's people who have left, uh, basically been pushed out. Um, and, and that kind of micro-accountability is just starting. And the book describes in, in careful detail the role of social protest. And in some sense, the, you know, if anyone has a vision of China as no protest there, well, the book explains very carefully why that's not the case, the, the impact of protest, but also the limits uh, of protest. Okay, so it's written in, in, in a sense in a sympathetic way, right? It's not a, again, it's not a sort of everything's great, rah-rah, it's not a everything's terrible, they're evil. In some sense, it's, it's sympathetic in, in the sense of saying the party, people in the party recognize the need for change. And there's, a, there's a line early on in the book, which is, uh, is a great metaphor, um, about the, the needs for change in the economic um, uh, system and that the, well, Correct me if I, if I get it wrong, whereas the need to move away from always sewing a dress for someone else's wedding and instead to be the, the participant, right? So, so moving into to, such as having China's own brands, uh, China's own innovation, and the book goes through and carefully explains the obstacles to that uh, in, in the Chinese system. And a key one that it, I think it, it does a good well, the book does a good um, uh, job of describing is the need to, to overcome the short-term bias in Chinese decision uh, making, right? There's tough decisions are needed, as Timothy just said. It requires overcoming um, vested interests, and it's really, uh, yeah, to me, that's the that's the main challenge. Okay, so so one of the the big changes the, the book describes is the need for change in a society that, that has such as two speed growth. The growth has a, is affecting the economy on different levels, right? The the um, not just the division between the, the coast. Right, the, the urban and the rural, but the rich and the poor and the kind of inequality. Um, it's fascinating the descriptions of how that affects society. So the description of the Chinese marriage market right, is increasingly divided by rural versus urban and by rich versus poor. And it goes through and describes in such as the ability of women, girls, uh, in the rural part of the economy, so the rural part of the country, have the ability to find husbands in the city, but not, but not similarly for, for many rural men, right? So uh, someone who comes from a poor family, is not very bright, maybe not physically attractive, and is, is a man, w w given the, the, uh, the sex imbalance uh, that, that's uh, arisen over the last uh, uh, decades, it's very difficult, right? So there's gonna be millions of Chinese men who will never be able to find a spouse. And this is something that's been pointed out by my AI colleague, uh, Nick Eberstadt, right? Having millions of men who can never find a bride has some pretty important negative implications, right? For Chinese society, but also for the rest of the world. Now, right, the, the, the quip would be to say, well, the, the first negative implication outside of China is for girls on farms in the northern part of North Korea Right, you're going to find themselves kidnapped, um, which I, I gather happens sometimes. Um, uh, 
But of course, having millions of angry young men is probably a, a pretty negative thing for the rest of the world. Okay, so that, that's one um, sort of change in society. The environmental issue, the book goes into great detail and again reflects the short-term economic focus. Uh, I did not know this, that the area around Beijing in 2000 BC supported a substantial elephant population, right? Which of course now is uh, it's hard to imagine that. Uh, it goes through a detailed discussion of challenges with carbon, with water, with sand, food safety, uh, and so on. It makes the case that ultimately the party is responsible for taking on these problems. And sometimes the electoral incentives that in the US we might have just don't apply. And so it's really a discussion within the party. And in terms of the key recommendation, the key policy recommendation for the party is the need to change the culture to improve transparency and accountability. And that's, I, I think it's fair to say the, the book says it's the only way to address the pervasive corruption in, uh, in, in, in Chinese society. And it's, it's deep on the illustrative st stories and explanations about why corruption makes sense for Chinese party officials, right, for CCP officials, right, there's a huge potential penalty, but very modest odds of getting caught. And so you can uh, do the, the calculation. Um, a fascinating insight, which, which I hadn't thought about, but which I think is, is right on, is dead on, is in terms of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party today, lacks a driving ideology or motivation. Right? The goal is competency and delivery, and which is a process, not a mission. And here I'm paraphrasing the book. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating. Of course, the book makes clear that the party is largely delivered, especially on the rising prosperity. Um, it's not as widely shared as needed for stability. Um, but the immense gains do reflect decisions taken by the party. And so in substance, for anyone Right. Anyone in the US, you don't have to be a fan of a non-democratic, authoritarian regime. You can still recognize that the party's gotten a lot of things right and that the rising prosperity uh, uh, has done that. So there's an irony in the contrast. Right? I would say in some sense the US government right, has ideology and not competence. And China has competence but not ideology, which is a, a sort of ironic, uh, ironic twist. Um, so, a further irony then, which the book raises, and again, it's a fascinating question that I just hadn't considered, is well, given this, given that the party has delivered, why does China have such a massive internal security apparatus? All right, it's kind of, kind of perplexing. I mean, you sort of, when you walk around the, em the embassy just district in Beijing, right, you walk a block and you know, some guy in a you know, funny uh, uniform asks your papers, you give it to him, the next block, his colleague asks you for his papers, and you can walk by the Chinese embassy here. That sure doesn't happen. Um, uh, and so why, right? Why did they spend so much on internal security, even more than on the military? Um, and in some sense, the book asks the question, is instability really so close to the surface in China, right? Even with all the achievements of the ruling party, that China as a society still has this choice, has to make this choice between freedom or growth and stability. And I think implicit in the book is the idea that no, that China is ready to, to go beyond that, that that they can have more freedom and more choice without instability. And there's a sense in which if there was an election, a free election, the party would win, right? And um, there's a sense in which, um, again, repression then is not, it's not a principle, it's not an ideology, it's a process, it's part of the, the process and, uh, and part of the methodology. Which then leads to the natural question, is it sustainable? Is the current, the economic model is not sustainable, and the book explains clearly why that's the case, but is the political and social model sustainable? Or putting it differently, is repression necessary? And I think the answer is no, but maybe that's a question. Um, uh, 
And in some sense, the, the downside, which the book also makes clear, and I'll, I'll add a, a little bit of, of my own experience, is that the downside is, right, teenagers in China at some point, right, at some point realize that much of what they've learned before is really not true, is either somewhere between not true and not complete. And it's, it's just missing a lot. And in some sense, the, again, the contrast with the US, I think, is pretty telling that teenagers in the US don't appreciate the US as much as they should. And as they get older, they appreciate it more. And you see that, look, I teach in a university with many foreign students, including many students, many excellent students from China. And the foreign students really appreciate the US, right? They appreciate the academic system. They appreciate the, the society. Um, and uh, it's, um, uh, and, I, and I think American right, teenagers, as they get older and have families and jobs and careers and things like that, sometimes they appreciate even more the, the freedom and possibility. So there's, an, there's you know, I think, a telling difference um, that affects the, uh, the future. Okay, so let me just say a, a, a few more things and then wrap up with a, an observation of my own based on my own experience. Um, so what, as the society is changing, there's a sense in which the, the President Xi, in the meantime, is using nationalism as a rallying point and Japan as a common enemy. Um, uh, but eventually, that, that only goes so far, and eventually there has to be a, a, a common goal. So that's the future challenge for the, the, uh, the Chinese party. Okay, so here's my, my, so my two questions. Is one, is it right? Is the political system, the political model sustainable? Is the repressive state sustainable? Or eventually will that have changes? And then what does it mean for the US? How should the US respond, right? So one natural response would be, to move forward with, say, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, other things that, that bind the US um, and other countries together, in some sense as a counterpart or counterweight to, um, uh, to China, it looks like that's stalled. You could imagine other more forceful responses, right? So there's been lots of press, conference, press coverage of, say, China, uh, for, just to give a specific example, China's not living up to the agreement that it made Brokered by the US, China and the Philippines had a dispute over certain territories. They both agreed to back away. The Philippines backed away, and China did not. And so in some sense, China has, um, you know, but certainly from the Philippines' point of view, and probably from the US' point of view, is occupying Philippine territory. Now, obviously, the Chinese would say the opposite. Um, but my understanding is there's an agreement, and China didn't live up to the agreement. And I, I would be pretty confident that the captain of the USS Cowpens would be really happy to enforce that agreement. Right? So you can imagine, um, you can imagine this as a more aggressive uh, US approach to uh, push China back. I don't think that's going to happen, but in some sense, I wonder what the, what the policy suggestions are for the US. OK, so let me, let me, um, let me finish by giving my own view. Um, and again, I, I think the book is, um, is excellent. And so my, my story, my illustration of some of the same issues is that a year and a half ago, I taught a two-week course at Fudan University in Shanghai, an excellent university, super students. Um, sort of the, you know, all the, the best of, uh, of, of China um, on display. Um, and what was fascinating to me was that when I, I talked to them individually, they explained that largely they had reached where they were, at least according to their own telling, on merit, right? They did well on the national test. They got into Fudan. They said, yeah, yeah, you know, 7 or 12% of the students here are here on connections, but the rest are here mainly on doing well on the test. But they said, that's it, right? After this, I've got to go to the US, I've got to the, go to the UK, because anything above this 
there's a, like a glass ceiling. And the way to get around the glass ceiling is to either have connections, which I don't have, you know, again, the students say I don't have, but I gotta leave. If I leave, I can get around this, uh, this glass ceiling. They said, look, we all, and again, this is uniform. They said they love their country, they're gonna return, their families are there, but they had to leave. And it just struck me, like imagine if the students at you know, one of the, the top universities in the US, if they all felt they had to leave, right? Leave the country. Um, it's, just, uh, it's just striking in some sense of the challenges uh, uh, facing China. Um, so, uh, so, so to me, the, the, the challenge, and again, the book uh, describes this very clearly, is to move to a society that continues with economic growth, but I think has to be matched by increased openness and deeper personal freedom. Because otherwise the model, the economic model isn't sustainable. The political and social model, I suspect it's not sustainable, but I, I, it's a question. In some sense, is it, uh, is it sustainable? Um, uh, into the future. So I'm going to stop there. Thanks, Phil. It's uh, nice that we have a discussant that actually read the book. Uh, it's, it's not always the case. Uh, and uh, Phil will be reviewing the book uh, for the Cato Journal, which uh, should come out sometime this summer. So that, that'll be nice. Um, just a thought on the Stumbling Giant title. It's, a, it's an excellent title, I think, but it would also apply, in my opinion, to the United States <laughs> at its current juncture. Uh, friends of mine in China, when we had the financial crisis, which began in 2008, uh, basically, uh, would ask me, uh, what happened to the teacher? You know, we're always telling China they need uh, financial stability, open markets, and so forth. Um, so the US uh, maybe. Uh, Maybe Tim will talk a little bit more about this, how the future relationship, uh, US-China relationship will evolve um, because it's a two-sided two street. Uh, trade is a win-win situation, but we have these territorial disputes that could erupt uh, and, and other major problems that could erupt. Uh, so maybe uh, Tim will uh, tell us about that. Also, I'd like to ask him a question to begin with, and that is, um, if China's population is going to shrink, uh, relatively speaking, uh, their per capita income would go up, uh, especially if they have innovation. Uh, so that, that's a possibility as well. Um, anyway, let's, let's have some questions from the audience. I'll handle the questions. And um, we have a mic coming around. So if you raise your hand, I'll call on you. Uh, if you could identify yourself and then keep your question uh, short, and uh, you could direct it to uh, either of the speakers. Hello, uh, Pat Span, just representing myself. Uh, I'm a little curious um, if, you know, the way you describe the party and the party hierarchy making things work and all, what's driving this, uh, the, the territorial expansion? There was a desire to, uh, I mean, uh, they, they, I assume they still want to take over Taiwan. They're playing around with the, the, the Japanese, playing around with the um, Vietnamese, and the, um, which I'm happy they play with them, but the, uh, the Filipinos. What's driving this? Are they, are they, is it the, the nationalism? Is it, is it, you know, the... You know, uh, you always, uh, when things get tough, uh, have an international crisis. Is this on? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Um, yeah, well, China has 20 neighbors by land and by sea and has distinct disagreements with at least 15 of them. Um, they take different forms, but of course they're usually over territory, not entirely. Um, and it's almost always something that China wants from them. It's not people threatening China. But one area uh, is different, and it's because the north of China is the largest piece of contiguous water-short land in the world. And the abuse of the water table in China has been so prolonged and so extensive that now there are serious water-related problems across the whole of China, exacerbated by drought conditions as well. But the water table in Beijing has been steadily falling since 1949. Um, I mean, it's fallen, I think, tenfold. Um, Beijing's had a drought for most of the last 25 years, meteorologically. Um, you've got subsidence in China. I mean, China's the same size as the United States, but it has twice as much subsiding land as America. Uh, and that affects Beijing Airport, the Beijing subway, um, Shanghai. If you put 7,000 apartment buildings on alluvial soil that's uncompacted, people will tell you that it's likely to sink. And that's what's happening. I mean, Shanghai as a city is sinking. I don't know if it's going faster than Venice or not. But um, it, it's, depending on who's doing the measurements, it's quarter of an inch, half an inch, inch and a half a year. Uh, and so it's getting below the level of the levees. Um, and you've got this everywhere. You've got meters on the Beijing subway to monitor the subsidence. Um, High-speed rail, uh, they have to put sensors to check whether the trains can run or not how the substance is, is developing. And you've got whole areas of subsiding land that then join up to become bigger. Um, at the same time, you've got desertification. I mean, a quarter of China is desert. And the desert is growing, not contracting. Um, what is desert? I mean, it's not like the Caribbean. It's, it's degraded land. And it's for a whole variety of reasons. It's because of acid rain from factories that don't have proper polluting controls. It's overgrazing. I mean, I think China has something like 50 times the number of sheep and goats that America has. And overgrazing has, been, has just wiped out the Gobi, which used to be grassland, and now it's degraded desert. Um, so you've got problems all over the place for a lot of different causes. Um, but if you don't charge properly for water, you get overuse of it. Uh, and that's part of a socialist economic legacy that things weren't priced at market. And it's still not properly priced at market. You're still getting overuse. Um, the biggest user of water is agriculture, which uses 70% of water in China. And in agriculture, 55% of the water is lost before it gets to the point of use. And the five-year government plan is to get that down to 53 um, the government plan doesn't always reach its targets. Um, so all of this is going on. And so China said, what are we going to do about it? Um, we control the Tibetan plateau. 
where seven of the world's biggest rivers arise. Brahmaputra, the Mekong, the Ob that goes through Russia to the Arctic. So let's divert some of that water from the southwest up to the northeast. We'll dig some channels and uh, put some locks. Maybe at one stage there was a suggestion we use a nuclear bomb to blow a hole through the Himalayas. I mean, big engineering projects are very popular in socialist countries. It's part of a mentality. Uh, I think they've given up on the nuclear now, um, but they are doing a lot of engineering through the mountains. Um, and, of course, the neighbours are all deeply concerned because the orb in Russia, for example, um, is scarcely navigable now. I mean, I think you can navigate it by ship six months of the year any further reduction in water flow, and there's no navigation. Um, the Vietnamese are worried about the Mekong because of the ecology in the delta for all the fishermen. Uh, if you reduce the water, you change the ecology. Everybody in Southeast Asia is worried. Bangladesh, India are worried. The Russians, the Kazakhstanis are worried. It affects everybody. Um, we don't know how much they're going to take, but China's decided that it's a a non-negotiable topic. It's not something they plan to discuss. They're just doing it. Um, that kind of thing doesn't please the neighbors. It's potentially a source of fear and possibly conflict. Um, so it's not all about territory. Um, um, but if you look back, Chinese governments, even before the communists, have been concerned about being outmaneuvered on patriotic issues. So they never want to appear to be under-concerned about national issues. Um, there have been protests, certainly back to 1904, against governments in China not being sufficiently rigid in defense of national territory, national interest, and various definitions. So. When you've got school books in China that are even more incorrect historically than in Japan, that's saying something. Um, and one Chinese historian said, they're not even 5% correct. Um, this means that children grow up with a certain view of the world and a certain view of China and what's right and what's wrong. And until the government's got the courage to take on the issue of the teaching of history in Chinese schools, um, we're going to have generation after generation expecting the government to do things for various reasons which are basically wrong. Um, and just because some Chinese fishermen happened to fish off some islands several hundred years ago doesn't mean those islands ever belonged to China. And other fishermen probably fished off those islands as well. Maybe they didn't have writing in those days. But um, yeah, this whole territorial thing can uh, play on. Uh, the big unspoken one is that even more recently than the grant of Hong Kong, you had the 1860 Convention of Beijing when Russia walked off with 500,000 square miles of land in the Amur Basin and Sakhalin, what's now Vladivostok and Khabarovsk. 
Mao Zedong said, um, we haven't yet presented our account for this. Deng Xiaoping mentioned it to Gorbachev. It doesn't get much mention at the moment, but that's waiting to happen, particularly when the population of the Russian Far East has sunk as much as it has. And it's something like six people per square mile. China's something like 350 per square mile. Um, at some point, I would expect that to raise its head as an issue. So there are all sorts of things around, um, and they kick in at different points. Well, that was a very thorough answer. Uh, how about right in the center here? Uh, Jeff Barrett, uh, and uh, this is a little more peripheral, but uh, the, I've been reading from numerous sources and from people who specialize in such topics that uh, the Chinese are importing so much gold into their country that it equaled the total world production last year. Uh, what are they up to with that policy? I, I missed the last few words. Well, the, the Chinese are importing so much gold and what I'm talking about last year and previous years, particularly since the price of gold has gone down, uh, that, that, that it equaled the total pro world production last year. Now, that's an awful lot of gold. And w why would they be doing this? Do you have any idea? Do you have any speculation? Well, I've got a friend who was on the Chinese Monetary Policy Committee for the Central Bank. And my, my view is that they are deeply concerned about quite a lot of the Western currencies. And uh, I think it's no more than a diversification of their assets. Um, a lot of other governments around the world have substantial gold holdings for historic reasons. Um, I don't think it's disproportionate to the size of their assets. And if you look at what's happened to the dollar over the years, if you look at question marks over the euro. Um, I don't think it's necessarily strange or odd to um, see China accumulate a certain amount of gold on a large scale. Any questions? How about over on this side of the room back there? Yep. Uh, Steve Winters, local researcher. I guess this is to both. Uh, it seems that uh, I had been reading about all the economic uh, uh, initiatives and reforms that have been relatively recently announced in China. And many of the things that uh, you mentioned seem to have been addressed or are being addressed by those reforms. Some people have called them uh, the parts that uh, Deng couldn't push through, you know, the, or the part that was left out of his reforms. And so you have that span of the 10 years you mentioned and now uh so uh and you know things like this shanghai uh, uh trade zone so what exactly would you have wished that they would do beyond that because this seems to be a massive move to a market economy and um frankly i know for a fact that the people in the economic section at the chinese embassy in washington here were totally shocked by the extent of those announcements well in china there's a big gap between raising topics that you feel need addressing and actually implementing policy change. Um, over the decade of Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, 
they continually said, we have to eliminate corruption. We have to deal with rising income inequality. These are very clear priorities. We have to clean up the environment. They didn't do any one of those things. Every single one is worse today than it was when they came to power. Xi Jinping has covered quite a lot of ground in that announcement in November, and I acknowledge that in my remarks. The problem is, will they actually get put into policy terms and implemented? I suggest, as I did earlier, that there are so many people who don't want those changes, but it won't necessarily be that easy. And by saying that he was looking for results by 2020, I think in a way he was acknowledging how difficult it is to do some of this. Uh, and of course, it was all prefaced with the observation that we must still maintain the state as the dominant player. Um, so rather as Chen Yun said at the time of Deng Xiaoping, that um, uh, we can have the, uh, the private sector rather like a, a canary inside a birdcage. Um, we don't know how far reforms will go. I mean, he talked about the residency uh, situation, which is a really difficult one because um, it is rather like apartheid in South Africa. You either have an urban residency or a rural one. But 260 million people from the countryside are living in the cities with a rural residence card. They can't use the hospitals, they can't use the schools, they can't buy a house. If their children want to go to university, they have to take the exams at the school in their province, which means the children don't go and live with a father in the cities. There are a lot of disadvantages to this system. And you might feel, well, why don't they just scrap it? But of course, like politicians everywhere, the leaders of China are conscious of public opinion. And 15 million people in Shanghai don't particularly want 10 million rural residents in Shanghai to suddenly flood their hospitals and schools. So awareness of public opinion is a very important part of the political system in China. And we can argue over whether the Chinese leadership are listening to the right people or the wrong people. I think they define their people as being educated, urban, middle-class people. That's their franchise. Um, it's not the workers. It's not really the rural residents. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons why obvious policy change doesn't happen in China because there are barriers to it and they're rational barriers when you actually get down and look at it. Phil, did you want to? Oh, sure. Maybe I, I'll, I'll just add a few words. I, I think it's a, a great question. Um, so I, I look at just the economic side um, and the three reforms that, that, that I saw in the, the list from the, the recent plenum um, that were especially interesting were right, domestic, instead of getting, getting rid of or, or loosening the domestic financial repression, giving domestic households a greater choice of assets, um, capital account liberalization, and then um, normalization of monetary policy, exchange rate uh, policy. Um, and then in a sense, the canary is which way does the exchange rate move, right? You can imagine if all three of those are done or at some point over time, 
the uh, currency could actually weaken, right? The RMB could get weaker if Chinese families decide to invest overseas, right? I think people, in terms of people, in, 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 certainly in the Congress, expect the opposite. They think the, the RMB is undervalued, but it could be, the, it could be that no, that capital, um, the, the demand is the opposite way and the currency weakens. It's hard to know. Um, I think it'd be good for the country uh, over time, but there is a bit of an irony, right? The IMF view of capital controls has been changing. In some sense, the new IMF view is that capital controls can act as a substitute for weak regulation, right? So if domestic bank regulation is poor or non-existent, then capital controls can be a substitute. And so to provide an envelope around, uh, or a fence around um, weak regulation. And so there's a sense in which the kind of hesitancy that the government has had in, in moving forward on this liberalization is actually backed up by legitimate uh, concerns. And to me, that's the, that's the question is, can they achieve this by 2020? And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so sure they will. Yeah. Uh, for Mr. Beardson, uh, when you were doing business or as you do business uh, uh, in Hong Kong and China, uh, do you finance uh, your, your business through uh, Hong Kong banks or Chinese banks? Or, uh, and, and how much confidence do you have in the uh, rule of law? You mentioned the judiciary as a challenge area for the Chinese. Uh, or does that rely enormously on personal relationships and you know that because your counterpart is uh, is a straight-up guy. Uh, you have confidence, and he has confidence in you. Now I'll extend this to the question about Chinese uh, uh, aggressiveness toward their neighbors and toward territorial issues. Uh, the application of customary international law in dealing with uh, those type of disputes is uh, considered how in China by the by the by a the population the more uh, xenophobic side, I guess, and as the, with the party, uh, they don't seem to be inclined to uh, adjudicate disputes. Uh, can you kind of draw that together for me? Well, I think there are really two kinds of rule of law in China. Um, in the commercial field, I think China's legal system has got quite a lot better and quite a lot more professional over the years, uh, there are still defects with it. Um, but outside the commercial field, uh, there really is very little rule of law because I mean, uh, judges are appointed by the party. Um, the law courts are generally under local government control. And so if you want to sue a local government official, the case probably won't come to trial. Um, I think one of the things China should really give consideration to is if the party is going to take the view that it will not tolerate independent entities outside its control in China, then at least the judicial system should be under Beijing, not under the provinces, because there's less chance for local officials to sway the law court system. Uh, that's just a practical policy um, initiative. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of corruption in China, but as I said right at the outset, when you actually look at corruption, any objective survey of corruption around the world, um, maybe Transparency International in Frankfurt does the best one, 
they would rate China in the top half of countries, not the bottom half. Um, in the bottom half, you get Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, Russia, the Yemen. Um, but of course, outside Scandinavia and a few Western countries, most countries are majority corrupt. It's just a question of by, by how much. China's up there with Brazil and the worst half of the European Union. It's, it's above Greece, but maybe that's not a surprise. Um, so, yeah, um, there's a lot of corruption in China. Um, but unlike Chinese people, I don't think that that is their biggest problem. I, I think other problems are more serious for them. Well, uh, I know Phil has to get back to teach class, so wh why don't we take one more question, then we'll go to lunch. Um, let's see. Right here. Hi, Chen Weihua, China Daily. Yeah, I just want to see, because you, you seem to be looking at a really long term, not, uh, uh, but the questions, your problem you raise seems to, in my view, is like next uh, years, a decade or two. If you look at China 30, 40 years ago, I mean, they faced a different set of challenges. I mean, you talk about uh, lack of infrastructure, you know, electricity shortage, all these difficult to hire someone speaking English. I mean, you talk about the challenge in the education, but you have 200, more than 200,000 Chinese students studying here. When they go back, they may help change the system, and it's already changing in terms of innovation, other sectors. I mean, the red tapes used to be a huge problem in approving foreign projects, I mean, in, during Zhu Rongji's early years, Mayor of Shanghai, but now it's uh, one, you know, stamp, you know. So, is that possible? You look back, you look at 40 years from now, China's problem is going to be very different because you talked about financial re repression, but China's uh, latest uh, ambitious plan, if successful, could change in that picture. Mm -hmm. And the other is, you know, you talk about the Communist Party is uh, kind of uh, can address the problem very successfully in the past decade. You know, my feeling is if, if you listen to Obama's State of Union address, when he mentioned China, it's almost telling the Congress, it's almost show his disappointment in the Congress. Look, even the Chinese can do that. Why we cannot? Uh, you know, in a sense, do you think like Obama is a little jealousy about, you know, the Chinese maybe government authoritarian, whatever, they can do things <laughs> and Obama himself cannot. Thank you. <laughs> There was a book about two years ago by Brzezinski on why America was going to lose its position in the world. And the list of reasons that he gave, infrastructure, debt, um, education, every one of those issues is a problem for China as well as for America. Um, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, China has policy gridlock, just like you have in Washington. It just takes a different form. China's got some of the best environmental legislation in the world. It just doesn't implement it. Now, their gridlock is the gap between law and implementation. Um, so in the 80s and the 90s, China was a really admirable reforming country. I think I called it the fastest reforming country in the world. You know, 
every month something new was happening. It was really exciting. It's just gone to sleep since 2000. It's failed to attend to reform. Now Xi Jinping is, is saying that he wants to put reform on the agenda, which who and when did say they, they, they did call for changes. Um, we need to see the implementation. There's nothing wrong with uh, what he recommended. Um, there could have been more issues, but if he gave us quite a lot. Um, it's not bad. Um, but the issue is, will he be able to get it all through this very large governing structure? China is not a dictatorship. The president of China cannot change China. There are several hundred, if not over a thousand people who matter in China. A lot of them have an economic interest in the way things are today and don't want radical change. China needs radical change. The issue is whether Xi and Li Keqiang can get change through. I think it's not clear. And will they get it through quickly enough? I don't think it's clear. My guess is that they won't. But let's see.